Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Arlington. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Chris Ginsher. I'm a pastor in our North Texas Presbytery, and it's been my privilege to come preach the Word of God with you all for the last, well, last couple of months, a few weeks out of the month, and I'm excited to be continuing today. We're going to continue in John, and so if you haven't been here, we've uh, covered John 1 through 2. This is the fourth time I'm preaching, and we're only at chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter of John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible and want to follow along, or you just want to read on the screen behind me, that is totally fine. But John chapter 3 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words now of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I obviously have an affinity for picking long passages to read and preach from. And John chapter 3 is no excuse. As I was reading through this, I just I didn't know where to stop, honestly. Because what John does in John chapter 3 is he, he's building upon what we've talked about before. When Jesus performs one of his signs, there's an immediate and ongoing response to that sign. And what we saw in John chapter 2 is Jesus performing a sign for a few of his disciples and friends at the wedding at Cana. And then going into the temple where publicly he cleansed it and he whipped out the money changers and everything else. And now what we're seeing is kind of the fallout or the shakedown from that, where this man Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And maybe it was just the fact that I read uh, Nicodemus's uh, response to Jesus. Uh, how can a man enter into his mother's womb when he's old? And I don't know. Something about that just hit me this week. I am getting older. And I know this because the songs that I used to listen to and kind of rock out to in my teens and 20s are now considered classic rock. <laughs> I was listening to the station as I was dropping my kids off to work, and one song came up, and I've heard it countless times. And it's the song called Semi-Charmed Life by the band called Third Eye Blind. Two of you are nodding. You know what song I'm talking about. We are of the same age group. This song was popular. It was one of the countless 90s one-hit wonders. And it starts with this kind of upbeat, poppy, I'm just going to do it. Do, 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 right? But it's got this kind of like edge guitar to it, right? It's just kind of a juxtaposition. But the lyrics of this song go, when you get to the chorus, I want something else to get me through this semi-charmed kind of life. The guy who wrote the song wrote it as he was watching his friends take crystal meth at another concert. And he said, I wanted to have something that just fit this juxtaposition I'm feeling in life. That we have something bright and summery and hopeful mixed with we need something as strong and potent like another drug like crystal meth to help us experience that. He would write on, he would say, it was about living and all the machinations that were going on at the time with my friend group, now in their early 20s and out of college, because we know that's the height of wisdom and reflection is our early 20s. 
But he said, it's also the weight of coming to terms with the kind of agony that your life is always about to change and never be reliable. Later on, he would say in another interview, somebody said once that it sounds like summer and everything is going to be wonderful. And I love that just because of the verb tense. It's all sort of out there in the future. It's got this green light. I always thought that was the essence of this song. It's the ecstasy and agony of longing and never, ever being able to arrive. I want something else. It's the Gen X version of the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. It's the refrain of every generation that says, I am looking for something to fill the semi-charmed life I'm living in this world. And what is that something else going to be? It's Honestly, it's the same thing that drove Nicodemus, a good religious leader, to seek Jesus out at night. How do you escape a semi-charmed life You do it by seeing and seeking the kingdom of God. And this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus shows us that this seeing and seeking the kingdom of God leads you through a journey of three things. A journey through curiosity, confusion, and then conviction. Listen to what happens here. Jesus has just done what he did at the temple. And then it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus by night. Now, if you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus publicly pushes people out of the temple and saying, do not make my father's house a, a place of merchandise, right? Like, get out of the temple, make room for the people who are coming in to worship. Do not use this to profit yourselves. And then you have a ruler of the religious class of Pharisees coming to Jesus at night. Some have kind of said that uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he's, he's scared, right? He, he's afraid of what his fellow Pharisees and other Israelites and Jews would think of him now coming to see this guy who just kicked everybody out of the temple that previous day. He may be coming in secret. We don't necessarily know all of his motives. But part of me thinks he was just wanting a private word with Jesus, Because you notice what he does. He comes to Jesus, and he comes with terms of respect, even authority, maybe even endearment. Here you have a religious leader coming to Jesus, calling him rabbi, not who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? He's coming to Jesus saying, rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So he was obviously talking about Jesus with other people within the group of Pharisees. He's He's a representative of sorts, or at least he's one who is curious enough to take the next step, to seek Jesus out. He says, we know that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Keep in mind, the only sign he saw was what Jesus did in the temple, not what he did with the water at Canaan. There was enough about Jesus to provoke further questions, further interest. Nicodemus was seeking out something when he comes to Jesus. He's bringing his hopes, his questions, even his doubts in this exchange. He knows he's come from God. He knows that he can do these signs. He's wanting to know more about this man named Jesus. And Jesus's response to Nicodemus takes things to a different direction. You notice that Jesus doesn't really address what he's hoping for, what Nicodemus is kind of hoping, expecting, Jesus would say. 
I mean, I don't know when, when, sometimes people come up to me and they're like, hey, thank you for this. My initial reaction is like, well, thank you, right? It's just kind of a, I want to receive it, but I want to be humble back. And Jesus is just like, you don't know what you're talking about, Nicodemus. Jesus says, truly, truly. When Jesus says, truly, truly, that's his way of saying, okay, let me slow down so you can catch this. This is me speaking with an exclamation point. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, ruler of the Pharisees, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, what what Nicodemus thought he saw in Jesus was the coming of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, you, you don't know what you saw. Not yet. Unless one is born again, this word gets uh, translated a couple of different ways. Like most words, it has a, a, a elasticity of meaning. And most translations translate it as born again. Another way to translate it, though, is born from above. Born from on high. In other words, it's not about sequence. It's about, uh, it's about uh, direction. It's about location. It's about origin. When we read this, you see how Jesus responds by saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're going to get to why that's confusing for Nicodemus in a minute. But what's interesting is when he says you cannot see the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus thinks he's already seeing it. That's why he's coming to Jesus at night. His inquiring mind wants to know more. He thinks he's seeing the kingdom of God, and Jesus says you're not seeing it yet. It takes spiritual eyes to see a spiritual reality. What you saw with your human eyes is nothing compared to what you will see with your spiritual eyes. And this is what brings us to confusion, because now Nicodemus is saying, I thought I was coming with good intentions. I thought I was coming out of curiosity to learn more. And you're basically telling me that I've completely misread the situation. Now, he doesn't say it like that. Nicodemus just responds the way I think most of us would respond if we heard Jesus tell that to us and we were Nicodemus' shoes. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's still thinking on this very temporal plane. He's thinking of this natural birth. How can I be born again? I've already been born. That doesn't happen, Jesus. What are you talking about, Rabbi? It's like Nicodemus' head is failing to compute what Jesus is saying, like it would naturally all of us. He's thinking first birth and second birth, not natural and spiritual. Jesus goes on to tell him, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's a different What Jesus says here is different. It's not that you can't see it, but you can't enter the kingdom of God. And this would have confused Nicodemus even more. In other words, this isn't necessarily helping the clarity situation that Nicodemus is failing to understand. Now he's being told he can't enter the kingdom of God. This is why that would have confused him even further. Nicodemus thought he was already in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought, I'm an Israelite. I've received circumcision. I can trace my lineage back to the 12 tribes of Israel, which can trace it back to Father Abraham. 
I'm living in my land under occupied forces, like I'm one of the persecuted children of God. What do you mean, enter the kingdom of God? I'm already in it. You can see where his confusion now is just starting to spiral a bit out of control. What he thought he had a grip on, Jesus is starting to unravel and say, what you think and what you assume may not be true. Jesus is pulling back a a thread, one by one, and unraveling the sweater that is Nicodemus' worldview. His place in the coming of kingdom, he would have thought, was assured by virtue of his race, his circumcision. He was a leading religious professional, moreover a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council. There would be few Israelites that could talk to Jesus and have better credentials than Nicodemus for being a part and a member of the kingdom of God. Or so he thought. Jesus tells him he needs to be born again. Born from above. Not born just from Abraham, but born from the thing that made Abraham the father of faith, not just the father of a nation. What, when he refers to water, you might remember this from when we talked about John the Baptist, but water was commonly used by Israelites and, and, and preachers and, and rabbis to basically induct Gentiles, non-Jewish people who believed in Yahweh, to come into the people of God. So Jesus is here saying, you think you're in, you need to be treated like you're a Gentile, like you're an outsider. You need water and the Spirit. You need to enter into a kingdom of God you have yet to see, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I got to hand it to him. He sticks with it. He doesn't give up. He doesn't turn his nose. He simply asks, how can these things be? Verse 9. Some people read that and detect more confusion, maybe even malice, maybe even frustration. I don't know that we can assume that of Nicodemus. He doesn't lobby any counterargument. He doesn't throw up his credentials. He doesn't say, I disagree with you. What about this? Now his curiosity has got him to bite the hook. He's sinking in and saying, how can these things be? (laughs) Jesus doesn't let him off the hook, though. Jesus presses in deeper. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? It's almost like Jesus is pressing just a little bit more to say, do you really understand, Nicodemus, what you're asking right now? You want to know how these things can be, and yet you're the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? When I first read that, I thought, Jesus, you're kind of being hard on the guy a little bit. Like, come on, he's, he's curious, he's genuine. Throw him a bone. Like, give him a little bit of encouragement here. But he goes in, he says, Truly, truly. It's like, Nicodemus, you're still not quite getting it. You're there, but you're not quite there. You see, Nicodemus, what Jesus is saying is he can know a lot about the Bible, but miss the message entirely. This was Nicodemus's obstacle, what he had to get over. When Jesus talks about being born of water and the Spirit, it wasn't just the, the, the cultural understanding of how a Gentile would come into the people of God. It was actually tied back to an Old Testament prophecy and promise 
that when Israel was to expect their coming Savior, their Messiah, it was going to be a, an act of God that would bring it about. And they would have recalled Ezekiel chapter 36 to be one of the primary hopes that they could have before this kingdom entrance comes in. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, says this, God coming to his people saying, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You know, that last promise, I think sometimes we skip over as as believers on this side of the New Testament and the cross. When we read that the promise is, you shall be my people and I will be your God, something gets lost on us that would have been felt very acutely on them at the time. To be called part of the people of God would be to acknowledge that God is your father. It wasn't necessarily novel that Jesus introduced the, my father who is in heaven, into the Lord's Prayer. It was the deeply personalization of that reality. But if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament, you would have considered yourself a child of God. So when you hear this promise, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, it's a promise to say you will be my children, and I will be your God. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, You're the teacher of Israel. Did you not read Ezekiel 36? When I came to you and I promised you that I'm going to do a work, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to bring you back into the land, I will be your God, I will be your father, you will be my children, but it's not going to come before I cleanse you from your sin. I cleanse you with water, and I put in a new heart and a new spirit within you. There is going to be something radically different about the way I relate to you at that time than the way I've related to you in the past. It's not going to be because you're circumcised, because you exist in a nation. It's going to be because I've done a new work in you that you will be called my people, a child of God. Jesus goes on and tells him, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony." This is where Jesus again presses him because you remember at the end of chapter 2, Jesus had just done the cleansing of the temple and people are starting to surround him and want to know more, but Jesus, we're told, gets away, excuses himself because he says he knows what's in man. He didn't reveal himself to anybody else at that time. He knew what was in their hearts. They didn't really want to know him. They They wanted to have their own way with him. They wanted to make Jesus fit some other paradigm that they had. They weren't really receiving him. They were just wanting to grab a little bit from him as much as they could. And here, Jesus kind of reiterates that point to Nicodemus and says, 
we're speaking this way because we've seen this. We know this. You do not receive our testimony yet. We keep coming back to that yet. Jesus doesn't say it. But it's almost as if he's keeping on pressing Nicodemus to make him make a decision. To actually receive the testimony about Jesus and to press him on all the excuses and everything he could throw up against Jesus. Here's what makes me say yet. Why I insert that. Not because I'm trying to add to the word of God, but because we know from the story that John paints for us of Nicodemus' life that right now he's confused and he's curious. But eventually Nicodemus is going to be someone who actually defends Jesus among the Pharisees in John chapter 7, who actually takes up his case and his side publicly. We're going to find out in John 19 that after Jesus is crucified and dared on the cross, it's Nicodemus who comes and he brings some of the burial spices and ointments and, and oils to actually preserve the body as it's going into the tomb. We don't see it yet. What we're seeing in John 3 is the curiosity and the confusion of Nicodemus. But eventually, Nicodemus is going to come to the point where he says, yes, I have a conviction about this man, Jesus, now. I have decided to follow him. I have decided to number myself of one of those who have received his testimony and actually believe in him. But we're not there yet. And Jesus gives us yet another kind of quasi-cryptic response to Nicodemus. I say quasi-cryptic because if you read this like I just read it, it might not make a lot of sense. You notice what Jesus does after he says, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things. And truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. He goes on and he starts talking again about this. He says, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. If you keep reading through the Gospel of John, spoiler alert, Jesus will be crucified. He will be hung on a cross. He will be buried in a tomb. And three days later, he he will be raised from the dead. And his disciples will be with him for another 40 days. And then he's going to be taken up into heaven, of which they see. That might be what Jesus is referring to here. If you remember in John chapter 1, when he's calling the early disciples to him, he calls a man named Nathaniel. And and Nathaniel says, why should I believe you're this man we're supposed to trust in? And Jesus says, well, I saw you hanging out under the fruit tree before your brother came and got me, or your cousin came and got me. And he says, oh my goodness, you really are the son of God. If you could see that, you know all things. And Jesus tells him, you will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, that was a reference to something else that happened in the Old Testament, where Jacob, after wrestling with the Lord, all of a sudden sees the heavens open up and a a ladder coming down and angels ascending and descending, and it was done at the place called Bethel, or the, the face of God, right? Jesus is talking about, you're gonna see a closer picture of God when you actually see that opening, the angels ascending and descending. You actually see not just angels, but you see the Son of Man, the one who came from above, descending into God, and then ascending back to where he came from. The one that gets me, though, is verse 14, because he gives them another Old Testament picture here. Verse 14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
This is one of the crazier stories in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, you should go read it sometime. It's fascinating. The Old Testament people of God do what the Old Testament people of God do. They forget God. They do their own thing. They grumble and they complain. And God has to get their attention. And normally that takes a pretty severe consequence. This time, God sent serpents into the, 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 the camp of the Israelites, and they were literally killing the Israelites. These were venomous snakes. I don't know about you. I hate snakes. I see any snake. I see anything that looks like a snake. I see these cords and cables. I'm wondering if they're a snake. I am on hyper alert because I do not like snakes. And I know that my man card has just went way down in the eyes of some of you. I do not care. If there were snakes that came into my home in mass and started biting everything, it would be it would be worse than snakes on a plane. It would just be it would be awful. You know what God did though to spare his people from their own sin and his own judgment? He said, "Moses, I want you to to fix a bronze snake on a pole and I want you to lift it up in the midst of the camp." And anybody who's bitten by the snake can look at that pole and be spared. Given what you know of my fear of snakes, how likely do you think I would be to want to actively look at and stare at another snake that's the cause of my own demise? Do you know how much faith it would have to take for me to look at something that caused so much fear, so much death, so much just tribulation in my own life to be able to face it, confront it, look at it, and trust that God is going to actually save me and spare me? It's not just a weird story in the Old Testament. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Because when Jesus does go to the cross, we see not just the perfect, sinless man, but we see God himself taking the place of our sin on that cross. Where the Israelites in in Numbers 21 saw their sin, their cause of their demise on that pole and had to look at it and square it facely and say, or face it squarely and say, that is the cause of my demise. We have to look at the cross Jesus is going to bear and say the exact same thing. He's there in my place. My sin is on him. I have to look at that and facely square my own sin that caused him to be there. Jesus is saying, you're not going to see and enter the kingdom of God until you see the Son of Man lifted up. Not squarely into heaven, but first on the cross in your place. That's just my second point. That's the confusion bit of this conversation between Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and Jesus. But it's all meant to lead to a point of conviction. And this is where, for the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to say, here's what happens when you decide to accept my testimony and our testimony. When you actually see the kingdom of God, when you actually enter the kingdom of God, Here's the reality to which you will start to see life. It starts with the most 
famous and widely recognized verses, if you know one verse in the Bible, if you endeavor to memorize one verse of the Bible, if you hope to ever share your faith, this would be one verse of the Bible that can summarize just about everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world. Not necessarily a promise to love everyone indiscriminately in the exact same way. We're not supposed to read this and say, this is a proof text, this is a reason, this is a rationalization that says, oh, everybody's just going to be okay. When Jesus tells Nicodemus this, he's saying, no, God loved the world, everyone and everything in it. That's what prompted him to send me in the first place. But the world as in that which is in opposition to God, the world that said, God, we're going to take your gifts of life and everything you've given us, and we're just going to do what we want with it. And we're going to forget about you. And we're going to grumble and complain against you. And we're going to start to ignore you. And then we're going to start to hold you in contempt. And then we're going to start to just do whatever we want without any consequences. That's the world Jesus is referring to here. He's saying, God so loved a world that doesn't deserve it. And yet it still didn't stop him from giving his only son. In other words, entering the kingdom of God, accepting the testimony about Jesus, trusting in him, is not about cleaning yourself up and making yourself presentable to God. He already knows everything you've done, have done, are doing, and will do. He's not looking for perfection. He's not looking for you to clean yourself up with water, to regenerate your own heart and make it pliable and malleable and something that actually pumps out life from within you versus a heart of flat, a stone. He's saying, it's into that world that wanted nothing to do with me that I sent my one and only son. I'm giving a gift that is not deserved because I so loved this world that didn't love me back. The rest of chapter 3 is all about seeing what happens when you actually accept this gift that God has given or you choose to ignore it. Throughout this passage, we see that Jesus goes back and forth with these themes of those who have accepted this testimony, who have accepted this gift, they will, they will love light rather than the darkness. They'll want to bring things out into the open versus trying to hide in shame. They will do what is true, not just say, I believe in truth theoretically. They will actually do what is true. They will live it out versus do what is wicked this whole exchange between John the Baptist and his disciples tells us that when you accept this gift, you exalt Jesus rather than yourself. You'll be able to say, like John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. The whole orientation of what's important in your life starts to change. He says that when you accept this gift, you actually start to experience life and grace rather than persisting in wrath and condemnation. That's something that I think gets missed. 
I have a lot of friends that don't necessarily believe the same things I do. It, it pains me because what they think is just, it's going to be okay. I don't have to worry. If there is a God, I'm sure he's got better things to worry about than my little sin and whatever I'm doing. And it's a faulty assumption that thinks that we're going to go through life and when we die or when we meet our, our maker, that there's going to be some kind of scales of judgment. And it says, oh, you did the best you could. Yeah, come on. We'll let you in. Or you didn't know any better. I could see that. You, 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 get, a, you get a mulligan. Come on in, right? It's not going to be like that. Because we don't live that way now. We're not trying to live to avoid a consequence. We're already living with the fruit of our consequences now. That's what Jesus is saying. You're already condemned. You're already in darkness. You're already in the absence of life. Like what you think is life is a semi-charmed kind of life. And you're going to need something more and more powerful to keep that false sense of life going. Jesus is saying, I am the light. I am the life. I am the gift that has been given so you could actually live. And not just later, but now. This is what Jesus is trying to get through Nicodemus's head, through all of our heads. He is the gift of God for a world that doesn't deserve him. Refusal to believe in Christ It's not just one of many sins. It's the climax of a life of sin and living life on our own terms that says we will refuse whatever God tries to give us. Yeah, I had an old pastor and friend. He used to put it this way. He used to say that the the mantra of the gospel is this. I am a complete idiot. It's true. Left to myself, I am a complete idiot. Believe it or not, probably so are you. But my future is incredibly bright. Meaning, it's not up to me to get it right. I can still be a complete idiot and have a bright future. Because the gospel says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish like they currently are, but have eternal life, which starts now. The mantra, I'm a complete idiot, my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. Even someone like Nicodemus, with all of his biblical knowledge, but missing the message entirely. We can experience life by magnifying Christ and being honest about ourselves that we're sinners in need of salvation so we can, we can just stop minimizing and managing our sin. We can actually confess it because we're convicted by it. And we cannot let that stand or get in our way of a relationship with God and living that out in this world. He has given us his son the best he could possibly give us when we were and at are at our worst. When we get that kind of salvation, when we see that kind of reality, when we seek that kingdom of God, that kind of love, it doesn't just demand our all, but it will be our joy to give our all 
to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift that you have given us that we do not deserve. We thank you that even when we bring our questions, our doubts, our so-called knowledge, everything, you see it for what it is. Something that pales in comparison to what you want to give us in Christ. Help us now to see, love, accept, and be changed by him. We pray and ask this in your son's name. Amen.